Orange Curtain, a look at 80s music from Orange County, California. Music that came from here and music that came to here. Join me, your host, Doug Crandall, every Thursday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Took her back to my place Feeling guilty, feeling scared Hidden cameras everywhere Stop! Hold on Stay in control Welcome to another episode of Behind the Orange Curtain. Behind the Orange Curtain explores music that came from Orange County, California to influence the rest of the world, and music that made it to Orange County, California from around the world to influence those of us who lived here in the 1980s. This week, we'll look at the US Festival, specifically 1982. If you remember, the goal for November is to look at threads and themes of thankfulness and giving. If there's one individual who gave us the most in the 80s, when it came to music, it was Steve Wozniak of Apple Computer, and we are thankful for the historic events that he created in the world of live music and festivals. Steve and Gary Wozniak was born August 11, 1950. Also known by his nickname Woz, he's an American electronics engineer, programmer, philanthropist, and technology entrepreneur. In 1976, he co-founded Apple Incorporated, which became the world's largest information technology company by revenue and the largest company in the world by market capitalization. Through their work at Apple in the 1970s and 1980s, he and Apple co-founder Steve Jobs are widely recognized as two prominent pioneers of the personal computer revolution. Steve Wozniak was born and raised in San Jose, California, the son of Margaret Louise Wozniak from Washington State and Francis Jacob, or Jerry Wozniak, from Michigan. His father, Jerry Wozniak, was an engineer for Lockheed Corporation. He graduated from Homestead High School in 1968 in Cupertino, California. Wozniak has credited watching Star Trek and attending Star Trek conventions while in his youth as a source of inspiration for starting Apple Computer. In 1969, Wozniak returned to the San Francisco Bay Area after being expelled from the University of Boulder, Colorado in his first year for hacking the university's computer system and sending prank messages on it. He enrolled at Dianza College in Cupertino before transferring to University of California, Berkeley in 1971. In June of 1971, as a self-taught project, Wozniak designed and built his first computer with his friend, Bill Fernandez. Before focusing his attention on Apple, he was employed at HP, where he designed calculators. It was during this time that he dropped out of UC Berkeley and befriended Steve Jobs. Wozniak was introduced by Fernandez, who attended Homestead High School with Jobs in 1971. Jobs and Wozniak became friends when Jobs worked for a summer at HP, where Wozniak, too, was also employed. In an interview, Wozniak says, We first became friends in 1971 
during our college years when a friend said, you should meet Steve Jobs because he likes electronics and also likes to play pranks. So he introduced us. In 1975, Wozniak started developing the Apple I into the computer that launched Apple when he and Jobs first began marketing it the following year. He primarily designed the Apple II and introduced in 1977, it was known as one of the first and highly successful mass-produced microcomputers. While Jobs oversaw the development on its foam molded plastic case, Wozniak had a major influence over the initial development of the original Apple Macintosh concepts from 1979 to 1981. When Jobs took over the project following Wozniak's brief departure from the company due to a traumatic airplane accident. On February 7, 1981, the Beechcraft Bonanza A36TC, which Wozniak was piloting and not qualified to operate, crashed soon after takeoff from Sky Park Airport in Scotts Valley, California. The airplane stalled while climbing, then bounced down the runway, broke through two fences, and crashed into an embankment. Wozniak and his three passengers were injured. Wozniak sustained face and head injuries, including losing a tooth, and he also suffered the following five weeks from antegrade amnesia, the inability to create new memories. He had no memory of the crash, and he did not remember his name while in the hospital or the things he did for a time after he was released. He would later state that Apple II computer games were what helped him regain his memory. The National Transportation Safety Board investigation reported citing premature liftoff and the pilot's inexperience as probable causes for the crash. Wozniak did not immediately return to Apple after recovering from the airplane crash. Seeing it as a good reason to leave, Infinite Loop characterized this time. Coming out of a semi-coma had been like flipping on a reset switch in Woz's brain. It was as if a 30-year-old body had regained the mind that he had at 18 before all the computer madness has begun. And when that happened, Woz found that he had little interest in engineering or design. Rather, in an odd sort of way, he wanted to start over fresh. The accident put Woz out of commission for almost two months. While he was recuperating, he had time to rethink his priorities and decided that he wanted to go back to college to earn his undergraduate degree, for which he needed just one more year of classes, instead of returning to Apple. He enrolled in the engineering program at UC Berkeley in the summer of 1981 under the assumed name of Rocky Clark, in honor of his dog Rocky and his new wife Candy Clark. A couple of months after the crash, Waz was listening to his favorite radio station, KFAT, and had an inspiration about putting together a music festival, a Woodstock West of sorts, featuring his favorite progressive country music performers. He realized that while he had the financial wherewithal, he did not know the first thing about the music industry and filed the idea away after mentioning it to a few friends. Later that fall, while he was attending classes at Berkeley, Waz was introduced to a new age entrepreneur named Dr. Peter Ellis. Peter was a former college radical who had organized a survival fair at San Jose State University in the 60s, where he presided over the burial of a Ford Pinto. He hit it off with Waz and was enthusiastic about Waz's Woodstock West idea. Peter came up with the name the Us Festival in reaction to the Me Decade and threw in other ideas like incorporating a technology fair and featuring a satellite link-up with rock musicians in Moscow. Waz wrote a sizable check to fund a new corporation, Unison, which stood for Unite Nations Using Singing Over Network. 
to create and produce the US Festival, with Peter as the executive director. Peter put together a team and plans to begin to take shape for an impressive three-day music festival to be held over Labor Day weekend at Glen Helen Park in San Bernardino, around an hour away from Los Angeles. Unison paid top dollar to hire the foremost rock promoter in the country, Bill Graham, to put together a superlative bill of first-class bands, including The Police, Fleetwood Mac, Tom Petty, Santana, and many others. It was originally agreed that there would be two festivals, but after losing millions of dollars in 1982, Wozniak stated that unless 1983 turned a profit, he would end his involvement with rock festivals and get back to designing computers. Later that year, Wozniak returned to Apple product development, desiring no more than a role of an engineer and a motivational factor for the Apple workforce. Now let's talk about Bill Graham. He's recognized as one of the most influential concert promoters in history. Graham launched the careers of countless rock and roll legends in the 60s at his famed Fillmore Auditorium. He saw rock and roll as a powerful force for supporting humanitarian causes and was instrumental in the production milestone benefit concerts such as Live Aid and Human Rights Now. As a promoter and manager, he worked with the biggest names in rock, including the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Jimi Hendrix, Santana, Led Zeppelin, and the Rolling Stones. Bill Graham was born Wolf Wolodia Grijanka, January 8th of 1931. His family nicknamed him Wolfgang. Born in Berlin, Bill Graham immigrated to New York at the age of 11 as part of a Red Cross effort to help Jewish children fleeing from the Nazis. He went to live with a foster family in the Bronx and spent his teenage years in New York City selling baseball cards, playing craps in the schoolyard, and working as a delivery boy before being drafted into the army to fight in the Korean War. He relocated to San Francisco just as the hippie movement was gathering steam. He then became the business manager for San Francisco Mime Troupe, a radical theater company that performed in parks for free. The first show Graham presented was on November 6, 1965, a fundraiser to support the legal defense of one of the mime troupe actors. It was a transformative moment for the 34-year-old who finally found something that he was good at, by which he could also earn a living. Soon afterwards, he took over the lease of the famed Fillmore Auditorium, and there he produced groundbreaking shows throughout the 60s, including sold-out concerts by The Grateful Dead, Cream, Big Brother, and The Holding Company, and The Doors. Graham's mastery at promoting and marketing and managing artists propelled him to become one of rock and roll's most influential figures. Wozniak insisted that the event not take place in a stadium, but rather happen outdoors like the original Woodstock. The site, a 500-acre Glen Helen Regional Park in DeVore, California, was chosen for this reason. It was a vast arena with 1,800 porta-potties, a couple of helipads, and one of the biggest staging areas ever assembled at the time. It also allowed attendees to camp for the duration of the event. Was being was, technology was also a big part of the US Festival. It was described as a three-day celebration of contemporary music and technology. Robert Moog attended to give demonstration of his famous synthesizer, the Sensodome, offered a 360-degree multimedia light show, and jazz legend Herbie Hancock led a discussion about the Apple II Alpha Centauri music system. Several members of the original Macintosh team attended the weekend festival, 
although Steve Jobs did not. The stage that was constructed still exists today as the festival stage has resided at Disneyland in Anaheim since 1985 and has operated under various names and functions as the Videopolis Dance Club, the Videopolis Theater, and the Fantasyland Theater. The festival ran for three days in early September in 110 degree Fahrenheit weather. There was 36 arrests and a reported 12 drug overdoses. One associated murder of a hitchhiker occurred the day after the event. The festival lost a reported $12 million in total, and the attendance for the three days was about 400000 The price for a three-day ticket was $37.50, a 2020 equivalent of $100. The US Festival featured the first implementation of U.S.-Soviet Space Bridge, a two-way satellite hookup between the United States and the Soviet Union. Organizers planned to have the U.S. Festival and Soviet rock bands interact as a way to promote goodwill between the Cold War rivals, but it was too dark in California for cameras to pick up the festival goers when the link went live. In addition to the musical acts, there was also a technology fair where computers, video games, and science fiction were displayed. Dozens of arcade games including Defender, Tempest, Zaxxon, Red Clash, Centipede, and Crazy Kong were available to play in the tents. Here's a list of the bands as they appeared. On Friday, September 3rd, Gang of Four, The Ramones, The English Beat, Oingo Boingo, The B-52s, Talking Heads, and The Police. Saturday, September 4th, Joe Chirino, Dave Edmonds, Eddie Money, Santana, The Cars, The Kinks, Pat Benatar, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And Sunday, September 5th, The Grateful Dead, Jerry Jeff Walker, Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band, Jackson Brown, and Fleetwood Mac. But let's get started with more of the new wave in the punk scene with the first band from day one. Gang of Four is one of the most radical and radically important rock groups of the last 30 years. Their music starting with 1978's Damaged Goods EP offered a danceable solution to the problem of where four-piece guitar bands could go after punk. More than anything, Gang of Four were about visceral, high-energy, maximum-impact rock and roll. They made you dance and they made you sweat, just as they made you think. That exclamation mark at the end of the title of their 1979 debut album, Entertainment, incidentally, one of the greatest albums ever made, in fact, one of the greatest long-playing records in that period, was no accident or slight of design. Economic, emotional, political, musical, and yet it remains true and resonant and relevant as universally applicable three decades later as it was on the day it was released. Formed in Leeds in 1976, Gang of Four first performed in May of 1977. All the big bands that followed, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, In Excess, R.E.M., U2, have spoken of their debt to the Gang of Four, but in more recent years, the band's influence has become almost universal with the emergence of post-punk influenced bands such as Rapture, Radio 4, Future Heads, Nine Inch Nails, Franz Ferdinand, and Block Party. In a Rolling Stone article by Steve Pond, he tells us that the first band started with these words. I hear someone in the crowd just had a baby, shouted Gang of Four singer John King as the band kicked into the song Damaged Goods. It was just past 2 p.m. on opening day, while nobody had really given birth except Steve Wozniak's wife, who had delivered a baby boy the day before. 
It made sense that this 1982 festival should kick off with a day of new wave music and a radical English band resurrecting Woodstock stage patter. As the gang of four churned through a lively, funky set, it became clear that the much-lauded sound was indeed spectacular. 400,000 watts loud, but also far crisper and cleaner and clearer than anyone might expect in a cavernous, man-made amphitheater covering 57 acres. You could fit more than 55 football fields along the slope to the stage. Out in the distance, there were concession stands, but time-delayed speaker towers halfway back in the bowl kept the music distinct. Still, the fans didn't have a lot of patience with the Gang of Four, a quirky English band that most of them hadn't heard before. So let's kick off this episode with three songs that were included in Gang of Four's set. Damaged Goods, What We All Want, and I Love a Man in a Uniform. Thinking that I 
transition like for you to all of a sudden come out and play a crowd of 100,000 people? Um, I suppose once you get over a certain amount, it really doesn't really matter how many people, you know, uh, you're playing in a big place, we're used to it, I mean, you do clubs and we do colleges and 
and you do theaters for four or five thousand people, depending on the city. And uh, you know, your nerves can be the same in any place. You know, doesn't really matter. Well, were you uh, were you excited about the prospect of coming out here and doing a big rock festival like in, in California? Was 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 the idea exciting to you? I guess I was very apprehensive about it. You know, because uh, you're playing for a lot of people who aren't familiar with you at all, and we're used to. And we enjoy playing mostly for our, just our audience, so that you know how things are going to be that night. So we were worried about it because a lot of people never—they probably heard of us, but they hadn't really heard us. So uh, our type of music, I don't think we really uh, is good for transforming large crowds to our way. You know. Well, I assume you got a very good reaction out here today. It seemed like everybody it got very, very well. It went very well, and this festival was put together very well and. Really well done. Everybody was really nice. An interesting thing, though, I think, with this festival, that points out one difference, because it is sort of, uh, you know, uh, you can make a, you know, make it relative to something like Woodstock in a sense. At one time, only rock and roll audiences could watch any group and groove on it, right? Today, here, for example, in this lineup, they have three different lineups, almost meant for three different types of audiences. Definitely. It, that's why I'm saying it was put together very well. And uh, usually, I don't like festivals. It's usually very disorganized and. Uh, I wouldn't normally want to do it, but this one, very well put together. They try to fit the right type of groups together on the right days, and it's very well organized. And uh, what, what do you think about the, the the theme of the festival that they wanted a sort of sort of a uh, a union of like rock and, and advanced technology uh, to achieve some kind of harmony? Does, does that make any impression on you at all? Uh, I wasn't familiar with the, with the whole thing, you know. I, we just got added on pretty late and got here. We didn't get a chance. I just heard about all these exhibits that have been set up, but I didn't even wasn't even aware of it until just uh, a few minutes ago. You think the uh, it's a nice idea, I guess. So you feel that the uh, quickly arranged trip, the 3,000 miles from New York, was worth it to uh, be here today and see what was going on? And oh yeah, as it turned out, it was uh, it turned out very well, and you know, really pleased about it. That was Johnny Ramone being interviewed at the US Festival in 1982. The Ramones were an American punk rock band that formed in New York City in a neighborhood of Forest Hills in Queens in 1974. They're often cited as the first true punk rock group. Despite achieving only limited commercial success, initially the band was highly influential in the United States, Brazil, and most of South America, as well as Europe, including the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden, and Belgium. All of the band members adopted pseudonyms, ending with the surname Ramon, although none of them were biologically related. They were inspired by Paul McCartney of the Beatles, who would check into hotels under the name Paul Ramon. They performed 2,263 concerts, touring virtually nonstop for 22 years. In 1996, after a tour with the Lollapalooza Music Festival, the Ramones played a farewell concert in Los Angeles and disbanded. The last album released before the US Festival in 1983 was Pleasant Dreams, which was released in 1981, and it was their sixth studio album, and it was released on July 20th through Sire Records. Tension between Joey and Johnny colored much of the Ramones' career, the pair were politically antagonistic, Joey being a liberal and Johnny being a conservative. Their personalities also clashed. Johnny, who went two years to military school, lived it by a strict code of self-discipline, 
while Joey struggled with obsessive-compulsive disorders and alcoholism. While the band members wanted Steve Lillywhite to produce the album, Sire chose Graham Gouldman in an attempt to gain popularity through a well-known producer. The recording process brought about many conflicts between the band members, and there were also disputes overall on the direction of the album. Johnny was leading towards hard rock and Joey towards pop music. Ultimately, the album incorporated high production values and varying music styles, straying from traditional punk rock songs such as We Want the Airwaves and She's a Sensation and Come On Now. Most notably, the strife between Joey and Johnny would escalate to an unreconcilable level due to Johnny starting a relationship with Joey's girlfriend. Linda Danielle began a relationship with Johnny after having already been romantically involved with Joey. Consequently, despite their continued professional relationship, Joey and Johnny had become aloof from each other. It is rumored that the song The KKK Took My Baby Away is about this incident. In 2014, the last of the original members died. Here is the timeline. In 2001, Joey dies of lymphatic cancer at 49. In 2002, Dee Dee dies of a heroin overdose at 50. In 2004, Johnny dies of prostate cancer at 55. And 2014, Tommy dies of bile duct cancer at 65. They were one of the most successful and influential punk rock bands, but most of their albums didn't sell very well and they didn't earn widespread acclaim until the 1990s when their influence on the genre had become clear. They earned validation when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on their first ballot in 2002. They were the first punk band inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Clash and the Sex Pistols were eligible that same year, but did not get in. Here are a few songs from their live performance at the 1982 US Festival. Their total set was 20 minutes long, and some of the songs include Do You Remember Rock and Roll Radio, Rock and Roll High School, both paying homage to the 50s and 60s rock pioneers, Beat on the Brat, which was inspired by a screaming kid on a playground that Joey experienced where the mom did nothing to reprimand the child, The KKK Took My Baby Away, which we mentioned earlier, and Lobotomy.
We want you to drop your inhibitions and jump right in, okay? But did you know the gay, gay, gay took my baby away?
The beat, known in the United States and Canada as the English beat, and in Australia as the British beat, are a band founded in Birmingham, England in 1978. Their music fuses Latin, ska, pop, soul, reggae, and punk rock. The beat, consisting of Dave Wakeling on vocals, and guitar, Rankin-Roger on vocals, Andy Cox on guitar, David Steele on bass, Everett Morton on drums, and Saxa, a.k.a. Lionel Augustus Martin, on the saxophone. At the time of the US Festival, they had released two studio albums, I Just Can't Stop It, released in 1980, and Wappin' in 1981, and a string of singles including Tears of a Clown, Twist and Crawl, Full Stop, Mirror in the Bathroom, Too Nice to Talk To, and Hands Off She's Mine. The Beat was on tour promoting some of their new music before the release of Special Beat Service, which would be released after the festival at the end of 1982. Special Beat Service was the third album by The English Beat. Like the rest of their material, it was released in the U.S. under the name The English Beat. It reached number 39 on the Billboard 200 album chart in 1983 on the strength of two singles, I Confess and Save It For Later. An instrumental version of the song Rotating Head had previously been released as the B-side of the single Jeanette under the title March of the Swivel Heads. It was used in the conclusion of the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 1986. The English beat would be one of two bands, the other one being Oingo Boingo, that played both the Us Festival in 82 and in 83, nine months apart. The three songs I have from their performance are I Confess, Save It For Later, and Mirror in the Bathroom. Let's dig into the songs a little bit with excerpts from Dave Wakeland taken from various interviews that I found. I Confess. I used to love listening to people's conversations on buses. And in order, I suppose, to make it appear more confessional and more personal, I would often mess with which person it was written, whether it was I or he or she. I Confess was only partly autobiographical. A lot of the references point to a story I'd seen in a magazine about how a guy screwed his wife's sister on their wedding night. That was taking it a bit far, but it made me think of how people can get very sorry for themselves in any sort of situation regardless of their own actions. And so, two things in it were really personal for me that I found that I ruined three lives, but I didn't care, till I found out that one of them was mine. And the second thing was I noticed in my own life and in my young friends' love affairs that were going on, that when things started to go wrong for them, the argument was often about who loved each other the most, and the accusation was that the other person didn't love them as much as you did. And so it seemed to me that the hardest confession to make in those sort of situations were, they were right. You didn't actually care very much. And so, really, the deepest of the confessions for me in that song was, If it's all the same to you, I'll stay indifferent. Now let's talk about the song Save It For Later. Dave says, I wrote it when I was a teenager. I wrote it before the beat. And it was about turning from a teenager to someone in their 20s and realizing that the effortless promise for your teenage years was not necessarily going to show that life was so simple as you started to grow up. So it was about being lost, about not really knowing your role in the world trying to find your place in the world. So you couldn't find your own way in the world and you'd have all sorts of people telling you this and that and the other and advising you. 
it didn't actually seem like they knew any better. So it was like keeping your advice to yourself. Save it for later. The last song, Mirror in the Bathroom, Dave says, This song is often misinterpreted to be about cocaine, which is often consumed on mirrors brought into bathrooms. The song actually has nothing to do with drugs, as Wakeling states. In America in the early 80s, everybody gave me knowing winks and said, Oh, I know what that one's about. And it wasn't that mirror in the bathroom at all. It was the one on the wall, not the one on your knee. And oddly, songs can become sort of strangely prophetic, though. But certainly, at the time of writing, nobody had any money or access to cocaine until the song was out. I was working in construction at the time, and it was the winter. I'd forgotten to hang my jeans up to dry overnight. So when I got into the bathroom to shower up, I noticed my jeans were still on the floor soaking wet, covered in sand. So I hung them up, thinking, well, it's probably best to have them steaming hot and wet. When I went to shave, it was snowing, and I really, really didn't want to go. So I started talking to myself in the mirror as I was shaving up. It was weird, because I looked deeper in the mirror, and I could see the little caption on the door behind, and said to myself, look, Dave, there's just me and you in here. The door's locked. We don't have to go to work. Of course we did. Got on the motorbike. And that's when I started to ponder as I skated away to my construction site on this motorbike. And that's how it started. It was thinking about how self-involvement turns into narcissism, and how narcissism turns into isolation, and then how isolation turns into self-involvement again, and the vicious cycle goes on. So then I just started to think about the different situations where people would ostensibly look like they were doing something, but in fact, they were checking their own reflection out. And you'd see it perhaps on Saturday afternoon with people window shopping. Half the time, they were actually just looking at their own reflection. Then this restaurant opened, and it was a big deal at the time because it had glass tables. And I was like, oh, you can watch yourself. So now let's get to the music playing. I confess, save it for later, and mirror in the bathroom from the English Beat from the US Festival in 1982. We got a new album coming out soon. It's gonna be our third album, and it's gonna be called Special Beat Service. So listen up for it, right? Here's a check of it called I Confess. Wow! Just out of spot. I confess I grew a free life. Don't sleep so tight. Cause I didn't care to laugh and I but one of them was mine, oh mine Time after night, time after time Don't too much of both types of whining Still don't seem right, fight after fight To get out of my life, get away from me, get away from that girl It's not a joke, it's cards on the tabletop and I couldn't phone, I couldn't smoke, but I'd break the news without breaking your heart. Being tanked on earth, no only time. Cards on the table tie, sometimes it's like to say goodnight. Always searching for paradise. I'll admit that I'm good as my darling. I confess, yes, I'm ruined three lives. Did not care to. Yeah. 
Who knows this one? band on the bill was Oingo Boingo. They had just released their Nothing to Fear album June 22, 1982, and they had been opening for the police on part of their tour earlier in the year. Because we just did an entire episode on Oingo Boingo, we will cut right to some of the songs from their set list that I did not play in the previous episode. Here is Capitalism, Insects, and The Whole Day Off. And unfortunately, the audio from the tour isn't very clear, and so I'm just using their album cuts. And here they are. 
Next up, The Talking Heads, an American rock band formed in 1975 in New York City and active until 1991. The band was composed of David Byrne, lead vocals and guitar, Chris France, drums, Tina Weymouth, bass, Jerry Harrison, keyboards and guitar. Described by the critic Stephen Thomas Etterwine as one of the most critically acclaimed bands of the 80s, the group helped to pioneer new wave music by integrating elements of punk, art, rock, funk, and world music with avant-garde sensibilities and an anxious, clean-cut image. Former art school students who became involved in the 1970s New York punk scene, Talking Heads released their 1977 debut album, Talking Head, 77. To positive reviews, they collaborated with producer Brian Eno on a trio of an experimental and critically acclaimed releases. More songs about buildings and flood in 1978, fear of music 1979, and remain in the light in 1980. After a hiatus, Talking Heads hit their commercial peak in 1983 with the U.S. top 10 hit Burning Down the House. From the album Speaking in Tongues and released in a concert film Stop Making Sense, directed by Jonathan Demme, they released several more albums, including their best-selling LP Little Creatures in 1985, before disbanding in 1991. Talking Heads were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Four of their albums appear in Rolling Stone's list of 500 great albums of all time, and three of their songs, Psycho Killer, Life During Wartime, and Once in a Lifetime, were included among the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Talking Heads were also number 64 on VH1's list of 100 great artists of all time. In 2011, update of Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Artists of All Time, they were ranked at number 100. Although the footage from their show also has poor audio quality, I'll play three songs from their set list. Psycho Killer, Once in a Lifetime, and Take Me to the River.
another band that we have featured extensively on another episode entitled Music of Athens is the B-52s. They were next on the lineup. The band members were Fred Schneider, Kate Pearson, Cindy Wilson, Keith Strickland, and Ricky Wilson, playing a 13-song set that included such classic tunes as Party Out of Bounds, Give Me Back My Man, Planet Claire, Dance This Mess Around, Private Idaho, and Rock Lobster. There's a video titled The B-52s Live at the Us Festival. It also features interviews with Schneider, Pearson, and Cindy Wilson, sharing their recollections about the event and paying tribute to Cindy's late brother, the B-52s guitarist Ricky Wilson, who died of AIDS in 1985 at age 32. It was hot as hell in the desert, but as soon as we got going, we had the audience dancing up a dust storm, Schneider says of the show. He also says that they tried to play an intimate show even though there were hundreds of thousands of people. He says, I was trying to pretend like I was playing for 80 people in a small club. Kate Pearson also recalls that it was so hot that she got naked and poured the water cooler on herself to cool off in the dressing room. She loved being at the festival with friends like the Ramones and Talking Heads. David Byrne had previously produced Mesopotamia. In an interview with Stuart Copeland from the police, he said that the B-52s owned that day when they played. Here are three songs from their set list. First, I'm going to play 52 Girls from the album cut. Then Rock Lobster, also from the album cut. But then I'll play Strobe Light, the live performance done at the 82 Us Festival. Here it is for you now.
the beach. Everybody had matching towels. Somebody went under a dock, and there they saw a rock. It wasn't a rock. What's a rock?
that you, baby? Yeah. Got something to tell you. Oh, what? I want to see you tonight. I want you to walk in the door. I want you to lay on the floor. Tonight's the night we make your hair I feel electricity in the air I'm gonna kiss your forehead I'm gonna kiss your nose I'm gonna kiss your Lulu So I remember it being a very special performance. We were probably nervous too, and it added to the, you know, intensity. This was like a really special event, so it was amazing. And that was Kate Pearson wrapping up the song with her opinion of the experience of the US Festival. Although not technically on the same day, the cars played the 82 US Festival. And having such a big influence on the new wave scene, and technology as far as keyboards and instrumentation. I felt it only appropriate to include the cars in this segment. 
The Cars were an American rock band formed in Boston in 1976. Emerging from the new wave scene in the late 1970s, the lineup consisted of singer, rhythm guitarist, and songwriter Rick Ocasek, bassist and singer Benjamin Orr, lead guitarist Elliot Easton, keyboardist Greg Hawks, and drummer Dave Robinson. The Cars were at the forefront of the merging 1970s guitar-oriented rock with new synthesizer oriented pop that was then becoming popular and flourishing during the early 1980s. The Cars were named Best New Artist in the 1978 Rolling Stone Reader's Poll and won Video of the Year for You Might Think at the first MTV Music Video Awards in 1984. Their debut album, The Cars, sold 6 million copies and appeared on the Billboard 200 album chart for 139 weeks. As of 2001, the Cars had sold over 23 million albums in the United States. Shake It Up is the fourth studio album by the American rock band, released in 1981. It was the last Cars record to be produced by Roy Thomas Baker. A much more pop-oriented album than its predecessor, its title track became their Billboard Top 10 hit. After the success of their first three albums, the Cars had enough money banked that they were able to build their own recording studio in Boston, and that's where they recorded the Shake It Up album. The new setup allowed the Cars more time to tinker with their sound, but also meant that much of the album was recorded in pieces by each member of the band, instead of them being in the same room. The first time they pushed me to do this festival, said Ocasek, I admitted that I didn't want to do it. More than perhaps any of the other festival's bands, the Cars have a clear interest in sophisticated electronics and a gleaming high-tech look. Still, Ocasek in the article says, we were never pitched on that angle of the festival or on the Us Decade concept. I don't even know what the Us Decade is, he explained. I had told him, it's about all of us working together in the 80s, said the reporter. He smiled and said, that sounds nice. The cars were billed fourth on the day's program on that second day, hitting the stage mid-afternoon. That didn't bother Ocasek. He said he'd be willing to play anywhere on the bill. The band disbanded in 1988, and Ocasek stated that a reunion would never happen. Orr died in 2000 from pancreatic cancer. Their surviving original members reunited in 2010 to record an album, Move Like This, which was released in May of 2011, followed by a short tour. In April of 2018, the Cars were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and reunited to perform at the induction ceremony. The reunion was their final performance with Ocasek, who died on September 15, 2019, of cardiovascular disease. Here are two songs from their actual performance, Bye Bye Love and Let the Good Times Roll. Would you welcome the Cars? Sky. Always in some other guy. 
The last band of the evening that we're going to cover from the 1982 Us Festival is The Police. The Police were on tour that year, promoting their album Ghost in the Machine. The tour started October 1st of 1981 and ended September 6th of 1982, three days after the Us Festival. In order to reflect the horns bass sound that permeated from the album, the band decided to work with backup musicians hiring a horn section called The Chops, Daryl Dixon, David Watson, and Marvin Daniels, who previously worked on the Sugar Hill label. The opening act for the tour in North America on the second portion was Bow Wow Wow, or Oingo Boingo, or The Go-Go's, and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. For the North American Part 3 portion of the tour, the opening act was the Black Uru. The English Beat was the opening act for the fourth part of the tour. A Flock of Seagulls opened for the police in Norfolk, Virginia. U2 opened for the police during the UK dates on tour, with Bono joining the band on stage during their performance of Invisible Sun. In an interview with Sting, he says, Ambition is stronger than friendship. The journalist who introduced him to Stuart Copeland was Phil Sutcliffe in 1976. Sting was in a group called Last Exit. Copeland was part of a progressive rock outfit called Curved Air. Both groups were on their last legs. Summers, who had studied classical guitar, had been on the English music scene for a while, including a member of the band Soft Machine. Sting and Summers are from England. Copeland was born in America, in Virginia, but moved with his family to Beirut, where his father worked for the CIA. The three had instant social and musical rapport, but when the downforce of fame pushed upon them, there was no childhood bonds to hold them together. As long as the group is useful for my career, I'll stay, said Sting. When it isn't, I'll drop it like a stone. The group began to crumble in 1984 when they took time off following their tour of synchronicity. They returned in 1986 to play three Amnesty International benefit concerts, but plans for an album were scuppered by hard feelings and other commitments. The next time they worked together was 2007, when they reunited for a successful but contentious tour that lasted over a year. Here's a fun fact. Before they hit it big, all three members dyed their hair blonde for a Wrigley's gum commercial in 1978. Who knew? The live songs featured from the festival tonight are Message in a Bottle, Everything She Does is Magic, One World, which features Ranking Roger coming up on stage and joining them, Roxanne, and So Lonely.
Tonight's show was focused on the famous US Festival in 1982. Next week, we'll look at the second and the last US Festival that was less than nine months later, over Memorial Day weekend in May of 1983. The goal for the month, as we mentioned earlier, for November is to look at threads and themes of thankfulness and giving, and I can think of no one that gave more than the gift of music in the 80s than Steve Wozniak's personal checkbook by giving us these festivals, and I'm personally thankful that he did. And now it's time for Crandall's Crucial Cut. This week's Crucial Cut will lead us into next week's topic. This week's Crucial Cut is from a band that played at the 83 Us Festival. The song I'm going to play is from their second album, Cargo. Their first album, Business as Usual, was a huge hit and helped them earn a Grammy for Best New Artist. The band quickly went from local Australian group to a worldwide success. Lead singer Colin Hay wrote this song and explained in an interview that it's a song about what was happening at the time, the experience we were going through of stepping into the unknown. It was about having the fear about that, but also knowing that what was going to happen was inevitable. Leaving behind where you are and stepping into something which is out of your control to some degree. That's what it felt like at the time. After Men at Work went off duty in 1986, Colin Hay embarked on a successful solo career and became a favorite among fellow songwriters who admired his craft. This song is a special one for him, as it marked the first time he thought he may make a living being a songwriter. Let's get started with this acoustic version of Men at Work's Overkill, performed by the lead singer Colin Hay. And so, until next time, so long and farewell. I can get to sleep I think about the implications Of diving in too deep And possibly the complications Especially at night worry over situations I know we'll be alright Perhaps it's just imagination Day after day it reappears Night after night my heartbeat shows the fear Ghosts appear and
Every Thursday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's really good to see this happen now because, you know, it's just like they say, people can get together and have a good weekend and not have any trouble and enjoy the music. And there's technology here, which is really even greater because that's what I like. And uh, I don't know, it's, I, I look forward to the rest of the 80s. <laughs> 